Welcome everyone to today's webinar on what we call the supply side of spiritual care. My name is Michael Skaggs. I'm director of programs at the Chaplaincy Innovation Lab. I'll say just a few words on behalf of the lab before we get started. First, like most of our events, this is being recorded as well as live streamed, if it will ever start on Facebook. If you need to leave early or you miss a point that you want to come back to, don't worry. You get a link to that recording as soon as it's available. It goes on YouTube. It goes on our website. Lots of ways to watch it. When we send you that link, there's a little bitty survey in there. Please just take 90 seconds to fill it out. It helps us plan future events and let us know uh, what is helpful to you. And then finally, I want to thank our supporter for this project, the Templeton Religion Trust. This webinar is part of a larger project on spiritual care in the United States. I'll put a link to that project in the chat here in just a moment. Uh, and then as we're going to be discussing the lab's recent working paper on chaplain training and education, I'll put a link to that working paper in the chat in, the chat in a little bit. Uh, with that, let me introduce our guests. Jennifer Bailey is Executive Director of Faith Matters based in Nashville, Tennessee. Ron Oliver is System VP of Mission and Outreach at Norton Healthcare in Louisville, Kentucky. Suyan Pak is Senior Director and Associate Professor of Integrative and Field-Based Education at Union Theological Seminary in New York. So you got to get a shorter title. Have them condense it. I'm, I'm out of breath every time I introduce you. <laughs> and then finally, Nathan White is Associate Dean of the U.S. Army's Graduate School for Army Chaplain Corps Professional Development in Columbia, South Carolina. And then we're also joined by the founder of the lab, Wendy Kedge. Thank you all for joining us today. Wendy, tell us a little bit about the origin of this project, and then we will hear from our panelists. Perfect. Thank you, Michael. Thanks to all the panelists, and thanks to all of you for being here to think with us about this this afternoon. So this is one of the first major results of a project we're doing, trying to look at both the supply and demand for chaplains in the United States. So this supply side part of the project is designed to look at all of the organizations and groups that train and support chaplains. I'll say more about that in a second. Uh, we are actually now working on the demand side, which is trying to assess the extent to which people across the United States have had contact with chaplains in recent years and what the demand is for them. So we've just taken a national survey done by Gallup out of the field and in a number of months we'll be reporting back on that to you. And the goal of both looking at the supply and the demand of course is to look at where the gaps are. Where is it that the training seems to prepare chaplains for the work that they're doing and for the places and ways in which people are needing their support? And where are there opportunities for us to think in creative ways about how to do things differently or better? So a gap analysis will be the final part of this project that we hope will improve how so many are trained to better support and work as chaplains. So on the supply side, I work with Grace Tian, who I hope is here, to, and she did a number of interviews with all of the different groups that are involved in the training of chaplains. Um, endorsers, theological schools, some of the groups that hire, uh, hire chaplains and employ them. And we tended to focus for this project primarily on workplace settings where chaplains are required by law. So the, the military, federal prisons, and the Veterans Administration. Grace did interviews with uh, stakeholders in each of these places, and then she gathered lots and lots of training materials to look at what the training consisted of, as well as doing a very thorough analysis of the curriculum of theological schools that are specifically training chaplains in chaplain-specific programs. So let me give you just a couple of bullets of the main findings, and then I'm gonna turn it over to our panelists to think with us about how they made sense of things. We found, not surprisingly, that employers mostly expect theological schools and endorsers to prepare and vet individuals in the specifics of their own faith traditions. 
They sent, tend to see clinical programs focusing on hands-on experience, engaging people in diverse and pluralistic settings. And they tend to see their own training, the training that happens specifically in sectors or that employers specifically do, focused on aspects of organizational culture, including how to provide spiritual care in their particular contexts. The federal employers overall agreed that new chaplains need more and better training in crisis intervention, moral injury, and working in pluralistic and increasingly non-religious workplaces. We suggest at the end of this paper that theological schools and clinical training programs think hard about how to integrate these three topics into their training. And let me just say them one more time, crisis intervention, moral injury, and working in pluralistic and increasingly non-religious workplaces. We also make a point to make clear that all of these groups on the supply side, and there's a nice map of them in the paper, don't necessarily work as a collective efficient network. They tend to work in their own different silos, preparing chaplains with different skill sets. And we imagine a world in which they work more collaboratively so that we can prepare chaplains more consistently to do the work that so many of us believe is needed. I'm gonna stop there and turn it over to Jen Bailey, who's gonna offer some thoughts and we'll do the go round. Thank you again all for being here. Absolutely, thank you so much for having me, Wendy. And thank you always to the Chaplaincy Innovation Lab for all the good work that you do, helping us think through what the field of chaplaincy is and what it's called to be in this moment. Um, so my name is Jen Bailey. I'm the founder and executive director of an organization called Faith Matters Network that accompanies faith leaders, community organizers, and activists on the front lines of social change and social justice movements. And I come to this conversation as part of a burgeoning ecosystem of work um, that is training chaplains to serve social justice movements, a field that is emerging um, across a number of organizations called movement chaplaincy. And so as I was reflecting on the paper, um, it has been really powerful to think about the ways in which you know, our work as a part of an emerging field comes up against some of these standards and practices that have been true about the supply side of chaplaincy for a long time. Um, in particular, as I think about the folks who come to our work and just for context, we have run a movement chaplaincy training course for the past two years that's trained over 600 people in the skills of movement chaplaincy. And it feels like one of the things that was really resonant for us has been on the supply side a desire for folks who are being trained in our program one for a deeper sense of interfaith literacy so folks are really excited about speaking out of the particularities of their own traditions but are also interested in how to engage and serve folks who are not um who are not from their own traditions or increasingly as we think about um as we think about social movements in places where people maybe are coming to this conversation having some difficulty um, with in the past with religious institutions or folks who are called chaplains, um, the desire to be able to speak and have a fluidity of language to speak from is really important for the folks that we're engaging with. The second thing that felt really resonant for me in the paper was this notion of crisis intervention. So often movement chaplains are being called to be in places and spaces, particularly in moments of protests, where they are literally putting their bodies on the line between protesters and counter protesters. And so the question is raised um, in our work, how do we train people to stay grounded and calm in that space? And so 
I guess I, I come to this uh, conversation really curious about what it means to be in a third space institution. So we are not a CPE institution, we are not a theological institution, but we are part of an emerging sector of training programs and organizations who are attempting to in real time respond to what feels like articulated urgent needs on the ground of folks who I might call um, first response, first responders to these crisis moments um, in the form of community organizers and activists and how we come alongside some of the institutions who've been doing this work for a long time, but who may not have the um, fluidity or the direct insight into some of these contemporary and emerging challenges that folks are facing on the ground. And so I'm really anxious to be in conversation with my fellow panelists today as an insider outsider to the chaplaincy conversation as an organization that um, has dipped our toe into this work more out of a desire to respond to um, what we've heard as an urgent need in the communities that we are serving and accompanying, but not as institutions who have a long history of training, as an institution has a long history of training people in specific modalities of chaplaincy. Um, so thank you so much. And thank you so much, Wendy, for this paper. It's been a lot of really rich food for thought for us internally at Faith Matters Network. Uh, thank you, Jennifer. I, I'm, I'm next batter. Uh, first of all, I want to join Jennifer in thanking Chaplain Innovation Lab, uh, not only for this webinar, but for the um, amazing, interesting, compelling plethora of work uh, that they are providing the profession. Uh, clearly, uh, the leader of uh, uh, the thought leader uh, for the profession in, in so many, many ways, and uh, want to want to give a hearty shout out to them. I um, have the opportunity to work in a couple of different uh, parts of my background intersect this paper in a couple of different ways. First of all, I'm a hospital administrator responsible for chaplaincy, and that's been my journey, uh, my professional journey is as a professional chaplain. Uh, I'm also on the board of a seminary, uh, and I was uh, president of the Association of Professional Chaplains, and so I was involved there. So there's an intersection where all of that comes together in this, uh, in this paper and a, a couple of points. First of all, as the paper points out, uh, the pathway for what I'm gonna call professional chaplaincy, that's the, the zone that I work in, um, it is, is complex, non-intuitive, uh, changing. Uh, and th there, is, there is no agreed upon core vocabulary of what words like even chaplain means or to maybe even spiritual, spiritual care, professional chaplains, formation, endorsement, certification. All of those words are changed based on uh, who's speaking them or, or who's, who's sharing them. And so it's very hard without a denominator in the profession that we all have some agreement about uh, to appreciate uh, when somebody is talking to me about being a chaplain or some aspect of chaplaincy, or they want to move into chaplaincy preparation. Um, just the, the just the simple definition of the terms, uh, uh, which seems to be something that should have been settled a long time ago, uh, is still very much in the in the forefront. And, and people, entities are not really kind of willing to give up to their their piece of the turf for for terms. Um, secondly. So what I found is, um, as a person who has hired uh, a fair number of chaplains uh, for work in my institution, 
Um, the lack of standardization, I, I found in reflecting on this works against diversity and inclusion. Because if I don't know what their training is and where they're coming from and what their language is, it, 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 it's more, it's riskier for me um, to understand their level of competency. Uh, and so, uh, so, so it, I, I just sort of, after reading this paper, I realized I've, I've just unintentionally, which is what, uh, what unfortunately happens, it created this sort of a smaller bubble in which I work in to look for candidates. Now, that doesn't mean we don't hire candidates from here, there, and yonder, but um, it just feels safer. And, and of course, that's a horrible thing to be saying and, and realizing. But I, I just over the past 30 years, I, I just want to admit that, uh, that without that standardization, it, it's, it's, um, it, it, just, it just makes it harder to understand that. Um, I think the, the last thing that I, that I will just say in an, as introductory comments. So on the seminary side, uh, we are finding ourselves responding to the demands of our payers, and those are students. And so they want certain things in their curriculum. They want an MDiv that's not 90-something, but 70-something hours. So we've changed it. But on the other hand, you've got the, the consumers, the, the employers who want people who are better trained, more competent, ready to go to work. So there's this divergence that's happening in terms of what students are asking for, want to get that degree quicker with 20% less, but we have employers saying we need more. And in the healthcare environment, uh, the complexity is quite high. And so, um, where do they pick that up? Where do they get that? And I, I'm a little concerned that the gap is widening between the, su the supply um, and those who are uh, in, in the, the purchasing sector. So it, it's sort of, I sort of live with Murphy's golden rule. Whoever has the gold makes the rules. The students have the gold in some sense. So they're, they're placing demands on the seminary, but then the employers, they're wanting to say, um, this is what we need. Can you provide that? So it's, it's, a, it's an interesting quandary that the profession is going to have to figure out, I believe, in order to stay relevant uh, over what is going to be a very, very um, seismic change in our society in the next 20 years. Uh, and I don't know that we're well prepared for that. That's it. Thank you, Ron. Sue, we'll turn to you. Thank you. And yeah, I, I echo everyone's uh, appreciation for this paper. It addresses important issues around competencies, training, locus of the training, and an invitation for closer partnership. And I speak from my location as a theological educator, and I appreciated the ways in which this paper affirmed and challenged our curriculum and the practice of teaching and learning as they relate to chaplaincy. It helped me as an educator to take into account the needs of the sector specific chaplaincies and uh, what students need to learn in order to be effective chaplains. So just a brief background. I am at Union Theological Seminary in New York. Uh, we began to offer our new chaplaincy concentration two years ago. 
Although we had had many students who graduated from our seminary and became effective chaplains over many, many years, we wanted to intentionally tailor our curriculum to align it with the common qualifications and competencies as affirmed by the APC, ACPE, and, and three other professional organizations. And our strategy was to lean on the strengths of our faculty and our existing programs, namely psychology and religion and interreligious engagement with justice commitments to structure our chaplaincy concentration, which dovetailed well with these um, agreed competencies. So reading this paper, I was heartened to note the resonance between the union's program and what the federal employers are looking for in their chaplains, crisis intervention, moral injury, and the work of pluralistic and increasingly non-religious workplaces. Better training in these areas can provide a better foundation for further sector-specific trainings, alleviating the burden placed on those sectors. I should mention that a few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to attend the Army Chaplain's Experience at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, and learned about Army-specific tra chaplaincy training. There too, I heard the affirmation of the two main non-negotiables in Army Chaplaincy, namely, uh, interreligious competency and sensitivity, and family and spiritual care and counseling. So this paper highlights, um, also highlights the lack of intentional and sustained collaboration among the three loci for chaplaincy training, theological schools, uh, clinical pastoral education centers, and sector-specific trainings. The Army Chaplaincy Experience is one such program that tries to address this lacuna. Um, and few theological schools have created and housed CPE programs that allows for better integration between theological studies and CPE training. The Jewish Theological Seminary is one such program, expanding clinical sites beyond the usual healthcare settings into communities, social services, and correctional facilities. And in 2014, at Union, as a satellite of JTS CPE Center, I created a hybrid field ed CPE program that fully integrates the curriculum of a theological field education with the standards and competency of CPE, combining the strengths of both uh, pedagogical models. So there are pockets of closer collaboration between theological schools and CPE happening around the country. Nevertheless, I take to heart the, the paper's invitation to have a more sustained conversation and commitment of partnership among theological schools, CPE centers, and sector-specific training bodies. It also notes that little consensus or standardization of the chaplaincy curriculum across many theological schools that are offering specialization in spiritual care and chaplaincy, even though there seem to be some consensus about what the primary goals of the chaplaincy program should be. And it says in the paper, one, ability to work in a multi-faith environment, two, ability to think and reflect theologically and be able to address suffering, and three, engage students around questions of personal identity and authority. And you know, I see this as bread and butter of any uh, ministry, any spiritual care. So perhaps um, an ongoing intentional conversation among the three parties may bring some consensus, more, more closer consensus around chaplaincy curriculum. This will inevitably mean that each party will give up some control over their turf. And I'm not sure that I would necessarily advocate for standardization, 
Um, but theological schools accredited by Association of Theological Schools, ATS, while there are standards, how those standards are met and carried out are context specific, varied and wide. And I also wonder about the role of ATS in this work. The Chaplain's Innovation Lab has convened these gatherings a few years ago through Educating Effective Chaplains project, which resulted in the new soon to be released book, Chaplaincy and Spiritual Care in 21st Century. But we do need an ongoing, on, ongoing gatherings nationally and perhaps regionally to do this better. Again, perhaps the Chaplain's Innovation Lab can be that convening body. This is like a nudge and a push, right? And I wanna finish my remarks by turning to what I do, did not see, at least explicitly in the paper. The paper addresses chaplaincy in workplace settings where chaplains are required by law, namely the military, federal prisons, and the Veterans Administration. So I'll be curious to hear from employers or stakeholders outside of these sectors, and I'm glad that Ron and, and Jennifer Bailey are here to, to bring uh, those perspectives into our conversation, to see what they see, what you see in the chap for chaplaincies in terms of competencies. For example, what are the competencies of movement chaplains, animal chaplains, court chaplains, higher education chaplains? And perhaps that's another study. But, what, but what's more concerning is the absence of structural inequality, discussion around structural inequalities regarding race and other markers of difference. I was struck by an absence of one key competency, namely anti-oppressive, anti-racist, anti-colonial, approaches and perspective and lenses through which the chaplains provide spiritual care. Spiritual care can have the tendency to bypass differences and not engage the structural and historical harm that is enacted on consciously and unconsciously to certain marginalized communities. And to work in a multi-religious environment, we need to be critically aware of how certain religions are racialized and how power dynamics are embedded in the very care they give and receive. So the absence of explicitly naming this as a competency is troubling for me. And so I wonder whether this is a limitation of the study or it is indeed the state of chaplaincy in these particular sectors. So I would love to know more about that and have conversation around that. Thank you. Great. I, uh, thank you, Sue and other panelists. Um, I think I'm up next. Um, I'm Nathan White and um, just want to express my, uh, my gratitude to Wendy and Michael and, and other panelists for this paper and, and the comments. Um, and want to echo the, the thanks, but also say uh, I see this as a, as a good starting point, right, for further uh, conversation about some of the things that have already been raised. Um, and it's great because there's not really been that, uh, that starting point for dialogue yet. So this is a great launching point and uh, glad to be having this conversation here. Um, as I, I think the only kind of panelists from the um, federal side of things, just wanna speak to that uh, a little bit because I think it does inform um, my way of seeing things from this, this side of, uh, of the, the dynamics. So uh, with that, the, um, the federal government has uh, adopted standards for how they define chaplaincy. Um, but it's, it's a bit of a interesting um, 
tightrope walk because the federal chaplaincy is very much trying to, to walk the tightrope between free exercise of religion and the non-establishment clause. Um, and the way that they do that is by providing uh, particular standards uh, that relate to all chaplaincy, but then allowing endorsers to, uh, to highlight the specifics for their faith group. Um, and it, that balance has worked thus far. But we do see the trickle-down effect from the, the federal to other agencies. So back in 2002, with the start of um, uh, the, the operations with the war there, there was a uh, movement to a federal uh, to, to change the federal uh, guidelines of education standards from the 90 degrees down to the 72. Um, and then from there, a lot of the theological uh, educational institutions also reduced those hours. So it's interesting kind of uh, that trickle down effect. Be, I think largely because there has not been a uh, cohesive body like CIL or something like that, that can help uh, across the different sectors of chaplaincy. Um, and so the de facto kind of um, federal government uh, uh, regulations have have kind of trickled down in that way. So I found that interesting. In terms of um, the paper particularly, the uh, I know Wendy noted that there's this gap between what uh, employers are wanting to see and then uh, what the educational institutions are providing. Um, on the federal side of things, I think in one sense there will always be a small gap because there is very sector specific training that say the military or prison chaplaincy or other things will have to provide. Um, but uh, closing that gap could also be helpful. So something like moral injury, uh, crisis intervention, pluralistic care, those types of things. Um, it would be very helpful uh, to have those trained in theological education settings from my viewpoint. Um, and that would greatly increase um, the, I think the, the quality of uh, people coming into the, the chaplaincy. Um, I also just want to speak uh, to Sue's point, one of Sue's points, which I thought were very helpful. And um, just in, in terms of uh, the uh, the dynamics of, of racial discrimination and other types of discrimination. Um, as far as for the federal government, there are very clear uh, protections and very clear laws in place that uh, apply to all federal employees. And so in one sense, that's kind of the baseline that is expected of any federal employee. And therefore, there maybe is not additional emphasis that there, there sh should be or could be. Um, but just wanted to note that that there there are some of those protections in place that maybe weren't put directly into the paper because um, they're kind of assumed as a baseline for for federal employees. Um, beyond that, um, I, uh, I just wanted to to mention that I, um, I see the possibility of further collaboration as really benefiting everyone involved. Um, the uh, the federal government is very open to further conversation, uh, in my perspective, with theological educators, with uh, practitioners from a variety of backgrounds, in order to to address some of these gaps that we're seeing and to provide the best care possible for uh, those that we serve, and and to us that's really the baseline is 
how do we help the people that we're called to serve the best? Um, and what do we need to do to put into place systems and processes that can create the best outcomes and uh, not just for uh, you know, our current situation, but also looking to the future to make sure those protections, those standards are uh, put into place um, really to fulfill that mission that we've been given, uh, which is the caring for the souls of all the individuals uh, in our formations. So um, I think I will end there and, and turn it over to Michael uh, for further questions and dialogue. Yeah, Thanks. so we have plenty of time for Q&A. Uh, so please use the Q&A function uh, if you have a question. And thank you, all four of you, for your reflections here. Clearly, you're coming at this from <clears throat> four very different directions, and there are many more. But of course, we have to just start somewhere. Brian has a question, and I want to address his first because I think it kind of sets the stage for why we decided to do this. And Brian says, what drove the decision to focus primarily on organizations or contexts where chaplains are required by law? Uh, Brian, essentially that was, we have to start somewhere. And this is kind of the most clearly definable place to start. If you wanna know, um, if you wanna know how to become a military chaplain and what education is required, all we have to do is ask the branches and we'll find out. If you wanna know what's required to be a prison chaplain in the federal system, all we have to do is ask the Bureau of Prisons. That's not true everywhere else. Uh, if you wanna be a chaplain in higher education, for example, a couple people in chat have mentioned hospice. What do you need to become that kind of chaplain? It's all over the place. And so for us to have somewhere to begin, we went with where is it codified in federal law? Because we can, we can very clearly say that, and that gives us kind of a baseline to start out with. Uh, an anonymous question to Ron, uh, says, Ron mentioned a seismic change in our field and society in the next 20 years. Can you say more about what you expect that's going to be? So, uh, good. Yeah, nice question. So, uh, clearly, religious pluralism is, is going to be changing. Uh, I, I do think the most significant change for challenge that uh, institutional chaplains, uh, hospital institutional chaplains are going to face is the rise of the nuns in ONES. Um, when those that when that demographic is in charge of the budget, the budget that pays the salaries, my salary and the salary of our chaplains, I don't I don't think that they have a, what I, I say the intrapsychic infrastructure around spirituality. I'm not saying that they're not spiritual, not religious, but they, they just don't live in that world. And so the traditional arguments that have been made for chaplaincy, tradition, religion, rituals, a lot of those types of will, will mean nothing. And when you look at CFOs, CEOs, and survey, what's your biggest concern? Budget. That's it. And so when you have to, in my organization, need to slice about I don't know, not quite three million out of the budget. It looks it looks pretty tempting if you don't understand it, if you don't know. And so it's incumbent upon the profession to start now to articulating what we do in ways that are very compelling across you know a variety of sectors. So, and I, and I, I just don't see us doing that. I, I I really don't see much of that happening. Um, and so that, that's, that's one change that's coming that, that I think is quite, quite large. 
we had a really interesting webinar just yesterday on caring for seniors with, we called them secular beliefs in the webinar, but seniors who are not religious, not spiritual in any way. And one question that someone asked in that webinar is something that I think every chaplain, every leader, every trainer, every educator needs to be thinking about. The person said, well, for these people who aren't spiritual or religious, why aren't you matching them with a therapist or a social worker? Couldn't they address these issues just as well? And of course, for us, the answer is no. But until we can articulate that a lot better, uh, the problems that Ron mentioned are not going to go away anytime soon. Uh, Zach has the question, do you see looking at this in terms of codification, definitions, how do you see this as moving into hospital and hospice chaplaincy? I think hospital chaplaincy is fairly well defined, Zach, but hospice chaplaincy is a really interesting, is a really interesting example. Ron, you might be the most natural person to field this to, uh, but maybe not. I'm, I'm open to any answer here. I, I don't know that I'm convinced that it's being done very well at the hospital level. Um, you know, even, even in my near region here, there is a wide variety of, uh, of service delivery models uh, from volunteer uh, single person departments with rather large number of, of rather large amount of acuity. Um, and the, 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 very, the variance across the provider, I mean, across the hospital systems is quite, quite large. And hospice very much the same, although it, I, I'm not a hospice guide, but I, I, talking to folks, there are certain stipulations regarding reimbursement that stipulate what chaplains must be doing and things like that. So that, that at least to me, feels a little more specific, but I, I'm not prepared to argue that. I'm just prepared to say that's been my, my observation. I'll need some help with that. I think you can find lots of conversations that folks are having about, well, why, why shouldn't chaplaincy just have a legal definition? Why can't we have one definition so that everybody has to meet or not? And in some ways that would help, right? Because you could, you could articulate what you do very clearly. It's this you know, uh, it, it's clearly defined what a doctor is, what an attorney is. Why can't we have chaplain the same way? Well, that also introduces the, uh, the problem of losing a lot of this flexibility. Ron was just getting at this with, with reimbursement questions, which seem really bureaucratic and financial, but they really do get to kind of the heart of what it is that chaplains do. Rob has an interesting question about uh, military chaplaincy and says, Nathan, how are you experiencing the active duty army adapting to the spiritual needs specifically of younger soldiers? So with the chaplain corps role being focused on religious support, how does that, how does that shake out with a younger incoming, I don't wanna say cohort, but whatever you, a younger group of folks coming into the military? Great question. So, uh, so the army has recently changed its uh, doctrine and um, they have clearly identified that every human being has a spiritual compo component. Um, so they have recently written um, some publications about improving uh, holistic health and fitness to include everything from nutrition and exercise and sleep to the spiritual domain. Um, and they very clearly have defined spiritual in terms of it 
um, I don't have the full definition here, but relating to religion as well as philosophical meaning-making systems, um, that type of things. Uh, so inclusive of non-theistic um, and, and other uh, types of spirituality. Um, so the Chapman Corps is uh, definitely wrestling with this and in the ways um, to, to address this. Um, so I'll say, you know, individual chaplains are working in different ways, but they're very much concerned with, you know, what Ron talked about, uh, the nuns. Um, so we have the, these two aspects, the army saying, um, all people are spiritual people, but also there's this rising number of people who don't come from any particular spiritual tradition. So how do we provide for them? And that's uh, something we're in the midst of right now trying to, to look at how we do that. I think the bottom line answer is, you know, we're just there with them and we, we support them uh, the best way that we can um, through counseling and through other things, uh, meeting them where they're at. But, uh, but that's definitely a growing edge for the Army and for uh, the chaplaincy overall. And Nathan, you just mentioned the word counseling. And I think it's so interesting that if you, if you ask in, any Army chaplain who's been doing it for, I don't know, six months to a year, what do you find yourself doing? So often they'll say, we're talking about money and divorce and addiction and things like that. Uh, and when you, when you introduce that to the conversation, in some ways, you, you really see how having a, a robust chaplaincy education can, can help address folks. It doesn't matter what their background is. Um, it, it, it's really interesting to see that happen. And it's so key that in the military, the chaplain is the person that does not have to report the contents of this conversation, right? This is a completely safe space uh, for, for people who are in the armed services, uh, which is why they end up having these things that seemingly have no spiritual or religious component, but in many cases uh, do at the same time. Linda has an interesting question uh, that says, this makes me wonder about licensing for chaplains. Do you have any thoughts about this? And actually, I want to ask uh, Jen, I want to field that to Jim, because I think of, of, the, of the folks that are here on the panel and, and the types of chaplains they work with, social movement, social justice, this is the one where chaplaincy is really kind of wide open. And we see folks doing this with a wide variety of formal training, informal training, no training. So Jen, with that in mind and your positioning, what role does credentialing have in the future of chaplaincy? Yeah, thank you so much for that question. I think it's a complicated answer. <laughs> um, I'm really struck by the conversation so far, as a millennial and as you know, part of the generation and engaging a lot with Gen Zers who are part of the sort of palpable um, anxiety that folks are feeling about the future of religion and spiritual life in the United States. I, I think we have in part a translation issue because I would argue that a lot of the young people that I'm engaging with or who are my peers, um, while they may not be coming from a traditional sort of religious congregational context, or some of them do, right? A lot of them do have ways in which they express their spirituality in a very particular way. So for example, there are very few um, Black community organizers that I know who don't have an altar, <laughs> right? That is part of their ritual and spiritual practice, even if they might feel separated from the Black church that they grew up in. And it's an interesting 
question for me as somebody who is a part of a generational cohort that is causing some of this anxiety and raising some of these questions, but who is also clergy in the AME church. And so I find myself kind of constantly straddling um, this question. And I think um, what it boils down to, and I want to get to your question about licensing, um, Michael, is about people's distrust of institutions in this moment, and in particular, younger generations' distrust of institutions. And so when it comes to things like licensing and credentialing, um, the institutions who have historically been um, tasked with um, doing that work, increasingly, a lot of young people that I know don't trust those institutions <laughs> or, um, and so the question then becomes a complicated one as you interrogate, from whom does authority come and from whom does sort of the the work of commissioning folks to go out into the world. So I think in the, the context of social justice movements, or at least the folks that we encounter in our program, a lot of folks are are blessed and commissioned by the community right so that they are in deep accountability with the organizations with the community organizers with the the movements of which they are a part and so i think it's a really interesting challenge and i say this as somebody who has a degree from a, a prestigious institution of theological education who is ordained and went through a five-year ordination process in my um denomination and who is sort of at the, the precipice of considering how these questions factor into the future state of the field. Um, and so part of my, my response is, if we're anxious about you know, millennials and Gen Zers cutting budgets, we need more millennials and Gen Zers who are trained up <laughs> to serve um, their peers and those populations who can speak on a one-to-one -one level um, and who understand the variety of multiplicities that folks are carrying and the complicated nature as they interrogate institutions in part, I think wrapped up um, in their interrogation of the way that oppression and racism and sexism have played into the factoring and construction of those institutions, um, for example. And so it's complicated, but I have never been more excited <laughs> to be in a field that is wrestling with these questions in real time because it's really apparent to me as I see the multitude of crises that we're facing, um, whether it be around democracy or the environment, that there is a need for spiritual care in this moment and a dearth of um, places where people can really receive it. So Michael, I'm so anxious to hear more about the demand side. <laughs> um, and that as we as we were thinking about the supply side, being attuned to that demand and trying to intuit where what comes next feels important. Michael, can I can I just jump in here? I, I wanted to have this conversation with with Jennifer because this is so um, I'm, I'm yes I'm, I'm saying yes 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 because this is also what I encounter with my students uh, the so the question is the licensing and certification uh, in their imagination is tied to employment meaning uh, meaningful work that's going to give them salary right they have uh, so I, I know my students are torn between doing something creative whether it's movement chaplain or animal chaplaincy or other kind of eco chaplaincy. Um, but they look around and say, who's hiring in that field? And it's very hard to say, well, so so then they say, okay, so some so in, in my conversations with them, they'll say, okay, I mean, that's my true love, but I'm gonna have to get board certified. And maybe I can do a, a you know, double, uh, 
a bivocational, multivocational thing, right? I, I will do board certification and work as a day job. And then I, my true love is doing this movement chaplain or, or eco chaplaincy because they can't quite find a way for them to be gainfully employed doing what they love or what their imagination takes them. So but I guess that is a longer, longer way of saying, is it? And I don't know, I'm looking at who I'm looking at in terms of employment. Tied is the licensing and certification tied to uh, some sort of more guaranteed form of employment uh, for livelihood. Abbott is currently we're, we're putting the finishing touches on a report that speaks to some of these uh, nuts and bolts issues of what does it cost to become a chaplain and how much are chaplains making and then where's the correlation right what level of education how many units of CPE this that and so we'll have that available soon. Uh, Lee Miller asks a really interesting question and it's a long one so I'm not going to ask all of it I'll, I'll try to condense it Lee forgive me if I if I butcher it but I certainly don't mean to. Uh, but we've spent a lot of time talking on these gaps between what chaplains learn and what they need to do on the job. But Lee says, well, what about the spiritual formation component of a theological education where you gain some of the internal skills to be present, to be flexible, to be resilient, so that when things are really difficult, as they're going to be for everybody, you can do this work no matter what um, no matter what sector you happen to be in. So my question, and Sue, I'll, I'll pitch it to you, but of course it's for anybody, is how do we strike a balance between getting a theological education that grounds people in their own tradition uh, and builds them up spiritually before they go out into the world and prepares them with technical skills, uh, maybe not technical, but somewhere between soft and hard skills that they're going to need on the job? That's the balance we're all looking, if, you know, if we had, you know, I'll retire tomorrow, I retired yesterday, if I, we could strike that balance. I think that's a great, great um, challenge and a question. Um, it's, you know, on, on a certain set, I mean, I know what we're trying to do at, at our seminary is that while we understand the formation piece to be very important, and there are certain things that we do, like my, uh, my classes are kind of formation based. Um, and so we have to kind of understand what are those pieces and, and pull them together in ways that make sense, curricularly and otherwise. And it is a challenge. And formation tends to remain on the, on the level of the personal, and it really should be more communal. Uh, we've lost, I think we've become so individualized that we've lost the kind of um, communal uh, practice of formation, spiritual formation, which okay, maybe we just did that in the church, but well, how did we do this in an educational setting? We're not a church, we're an educational setting. And, and yet we know the importance of it. So we tend to lean more on, okay, you all need to do these practices for yourselves, for grounding yourselves to be in your faith tradition or your values grounded in you know, whatever that grinds you, grounds you. Um, at the same time, recognizing that there, what are those communal places that we need to, to pay attention to where this formation happens? And differences make it hard to have formation. And uh, you know, being in the midst of diverse group of students, which we have, religiously and otherwise, uh, how do we talk about formation in ways that uh, is not a watering down to lowest common denominator, and yet really uh, valuing 
the difference and struggle in the midst of it. It can be done. And, you know, I know that our students gather, they have uh, the practices that they have um, created, uh, weekly practices that they have. I mean, so our students really lead the way. I mean, I think, you know, as faculty, I, I'm following the students. Our students are great. They are finding places where they actually create the spaces where the formation can happen. So we're hoping that we can balance out those, you just say, uh, tools, right? Uh, skill set tools, whether it's about counseling, whether it's about, you know, understanding moral injury or listening skills um, with the, oh, the, the formation piece, which is, you're right, it's so important. I'll, you know, I'll invite others to jump in here. Hey. I think what I my my experience has been personally and uh, as a hiring entity that the the, the heavy work of formation uh, happens in CPE residencies because that's where we're that we require that as a prerequisite for somebody to have a number of units of CPE so there's a heavy emphasis on that um, I, I think it's important to note that that I, I think that's the enduring value of of um, CPE, and what I mean when I say CPE, I mean ACPE, CPE. Um, uh, but it's you know, if to, to look at, at what their objectives are, they're really not to train chaplains. That's that's not what they say. They're they're it's a learning, it's a method. Um, and sometimes I think we ask it to do too much, but I think we can ask it to help with pastoral identity using words of my tradition. Uh, you know. Uh, authority and use of self, uh, which are part of that denominational, the, the, the denominator structure that we were talking about earlier, uh, that can be then molded to whatever particular context uh, in which one's going to go work. And I might just uh, jump in there as well. So my organization is just about two years old, but we were created basically because of this specific purpose, because the Army Chaplain Corps realized that um, we need to do a better job of over the long term uh, helping people develop their uh, spiritual uh, formation and professional certifications. So um, we uh, we now are setting about that work of helping existing currently existing Army chaplains develop over their entire career to have further certifications, further professional development opportunities, and to con continue to grow spiritually. I just wanna say a word about this notion of communal versus individual formation, because I think it's an important one. Um, and I'm not sure, I feel challenged. I'm not sure that it's the role of educational institutions fully to do that formation work. And what I mean by that is, as I think about my own vocational trajectory and the spaces where communal formation has been most live for me, it's been an intergenerational community, right? It's been in a space where I am learning from folks that are younger and older than me. It is the, the church mother who identified at six that I was going to preach someday, right? There is something about being in deep intergenerational community that helps with formation. And what is um, troubling to me is that there are less and less places where people are engaging cross-generationally to have that sort of deep um, formation conversation that naturally comes from being in an intergenerational space. In fact, we're more segregated by generation than ever before. And so I'm not sure that is fully the role of, of the, the seminary to do that. 
I don't know if it's fully the role of the congregation to do that. And so I'm curious about what are the emergent third spaces that can serve as spaces for the type of deep spiritual formation that can help inform chaplaincy. Yeah, I, I want to I want to join that. Uh, thank you so much. I love the way you said that. One of the challenges that, that I that I am concerned about is that I see increasingly seminaries are going to online um, education. And COVID has certainly made a lot of that, made that necessary, but now it's made it easy uh, and cheaper. Uh, and I, I'm just fundamentally concerned about a profession that is essentially relationally about relationships and just how we get along with people and helping that, that give and take if people aren't in a give and take environment uh, to, to hone and shape that, the type of uh, multi-generational environment that you were talking about, Jennifer, which I think is great, but even, even just the demographics of a seminary or maybe even a college are, are changing quite a bit to being an isolated experience for, for many. Yeah, I, I want to jump in here. Thank you, Jennifer. This is this is proving to be a very engaging conversation. So thank you for that question. I think whoever asked the question. So um, yes, I agree with you. And I think educational spaces have been so head up in education <laughs> in teaching that it's mostly head knowledge. And formation is the it's the integration of head and heart, right? And and so it's what we value as knowledge in these academic spaces, uh, which is more in your head. And so, yes, that those third spaces are necessary and important, and educational spaces have to do a better job of understanding what what we have a better job and also different way of understanding what knowledge production is or understand or learning is because you know often it's what you could you know write a paper or understand a theory or you know that but um our we actually have a, a buddhist someone mentioned the buddhist MDiv program and it, it it just reminded me we have a buddhist uh a track for at a, a union and their program is intentionally um, shaped with formation in mind, right? So like the B Buddhist meditation is a requirement. They all have to take the course and they meet regularly have to have to, to sit together. And so there are things that they do communally that um, they do a better job of understanding formation and formation in the body as a professor. Uh, as a professional formation and spiritual formation than the, the other uh, tracks where we don't have those necessarily as a, um, as a requirement. So I, I hear you, Jennifer, and I think we also need to do a better job at educational institutions as well. A few people in, in the chat box have asked if it's possible to save the chat. Uh, I will save it and look through it and see if there is a way to make sure that it's only public comments that are available and we can we can distribute that with the, the follow-up email. This has been a very active uh, webinar. I'm just watching the chat scroll down the side of my screen. So I'm really glad that folks have, um, that this resonates. 
Um, we know we know that that with publishing this working paper and with this this one hour conversation that we're just barely scratching the surface, and it's not our intention to solve this problem the next six months, the next year. It is our intention to start the conversation and get people thinking about it, so that the types of things that we're thinking about here can sort of have a network effect, and a lot of other institutions can start thinking about it as well. We are getting right here to the top of the hour, and so I want to thank everyone for joining us. Thank you to our community for being here with us today, despite the screw up this morning with the mention of, uh, of the wrong time. So thank you all for being gracious with, uh, with your understanding there and joining us at three. I thank Ron, Nathan, Sue, and Jennifer for being with us. I really appreciate your time and your wisdom. Thank you all. Have a great rest of your afternoon. Thank you very much. Appreciate it.